Welcome to AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. If you were going to pick a Bible passage to turn to in these difficult times, which would you choose? I'd probably go with the one from the Gospel of Matthew about the inefficacy of worrying. It's a neat little tidy message from Jesus and a lesson I definitely need to hear. My guest today, Old Testament scripture scholar Professor Mari Leonard Fleckman from the College of the Holy Cross, picked three sections of the Bible she suggests visiting during these days, and it's safe to say that none of them have a single tidy moral lesson at all. A big theme in Professor Leonard Fleckman's writing and teaching is that the Hebrew scriptures are full of tension. They can be uncomfortable to read, especially when we approach them looking for the sort of straight-ahead ethical guidance we find in parts of the New Testament. But that challenge doesn't mean the Hebrew scriptures can't be incredibly illuminating and consoling during this era of pandemic and social unrest. In our conversation, we dug into Professor Leonard Fleckman's three choices, the book of Ecclesiastes, Psalm 91, and the story of King David. She also provided a great primer for how to approach reading the Hebrew Bible and shared a bit of her own amazing faith journey with us. She's a brilliant scholar who's also a clear and accessible teacher, and I really love this discussion. I hope you will, too. Thanks for joining us. Professor Mari Leonard Fleckman, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking some time to talk with me today. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks, Mike. It's, it's good to be here with you. So I invited you on today because I actually saw an advertisement, I think for some scripture study or something you're, you're working on, popped up, looked really interesting to me. So I said, well, let's let's reach out. Let's talk to uh, Dr. Leonard Fleckman, see what, what she's doing. Um, and then so I researched you a little bit and you've written, um, teach and write about uh, the Hebrew scripture and especially a few articles recently on like popular Catholic press about like reading Hebrew scripture in difficult times. So like, that's what I was hoping to talk about today. So maybe you could first start by telling us a little bit about your background and how you got into this work. Sure. Um, yeah. So I, I got into the work in a little bit of a roundabout way. So I'll, I'll need to give you a bit of context in order to, to get there. But I was raised in Seattle, Washington, and I was raised I would say on the borders between religious traditions with a kind of one foot in each world. My father is Jewish um, and that family is a combination of reform and conservative Judaism. My mother is Protestant. So she was raised Presbyterian and the, that whole side of the family has now gravitated towards evangelical non-denominational Christianity, including my sister and, and her family. And my sister was always the Christian one. We kind of, we laugh about this now. She was always the Christian one. And I was always pegged as the Jewish one. And that was, it was actually quite apt. Uh, I felt very Jewish. It was an identity that was really important to me. Uh, I felt connected deeply to that side of my family, to the sense of an ongoing tradition to being part of a, a link and a chain. And I was really close with my grandmother, my Mima on my, my father's side. And, but, you know, neither of us were, we were not baptized. We were not bat mitzvahed. Uh, so that's where we were. And I, when I went to college, I went to school in St. Louis at Washington university in St. Louis, and I was a Spanish literature major. And at that time I was thinking about going into Latin American studies probably uh, and so I joined the Peace Corps after after college. I went to the Dominican Republic. But 
before the Peace Corps, I was re- had become really close to, you know, full conversion, I would say, official conversion in, into Judaism. And I had not done it at that time, but I was like on the precipice of something really important. And so I went into the Peace Corps and in the Dominican Republic, I became very close with a few different women in this compo. And these women um, exuded this faith that was vibrant and authentic. It was something that um, seemed to be etched in their bones and uh, manifested in their daily lives and their relationships and through off, you know, many difficulties of their lives. And I found that captivating. And I also became really close with a family and expat family, we would say it that was Canadian living in Santiago, which is a, a close city. And they were part of a Christian fellowship, like a non-denominational Protestant fellowship. And they were also wonderful, beautiful people. And so between these different relationships that I had and these different communities that I became a part of, I was awakened to this different kind of Christianity. And I had some personal experiences of my own. Long story short, I was baptized and then felt this strong call over over that time in the Peace Corps to become a pastor, to preach. So completely shifted directions. I, after completing my service, went to Union Theological Seminary in New York to do my MDiv, my Master of Divinity, to become a pastor. And I, you know, looking back, I I don't know what I thought about Christianity, but I, th- I think I legitimately thought there was a single Christianity at that point. Like I had no idea all of the different denominations. And that really changed very quickly when I got to New York. And I had to find a religious home, you know, to root this new faith that I had. And it only took a few weeks for me to, sh- to end up at a Catholic parish on the Upper West Side uh, at a Spanish-speaking mass with a large Dominican population. And I basically just cried my way through the whole thing. So I eventually came into, you know, I was, you know, um, brought into the church, the Easter Vigil of 2006, And that actually finally comes back to your question about how I got into this field, because two things happened when I became Catholic. One, I could not be a priest, obviously, so I had to find a new uh, vocation. And luckily, I'm I'm naturally wired towards academia and intellectual pursuits. So even if I had been a man and had become a priest, I probably would have still gotten a PhD. So that was kind of the, my new route. And, and then the other thing that happened, um, which in some ways is, is more important is, and completely unexpected, was that when I chose Catholicism, I suddenly felt this like ripping away of this very important part of my identity. Like when I had made this religious choice to become Catholic, I was somehow turning my back on my Judaism and being Jewish. And it was a kind of an irrevocable decision. And so that caused a lot of pain. And where I found solace was in the Bible and especially the Hebrew scriptures. And so that became my space 
reading, studying, and also the languages, first Hebrew and then Aramaic and kind of ongoing interpretive traditions. It was my way of reconnecting with my family, with my, you know, people, I would say, not to be overly romantic and kind of sew back together the parts of who I was. So that's how I, that's how I got into it. That's an amazing story. Thanks so much for sharing that. And I'm hearing some resonances in my own story. We talked beforehand that I'm also of a kind of mixed family, a Jewish dad and a, a Catholic mom. We were raised like Catholic though. Uh, but for me, it was like going into social justice work when I really felt kind of strongly called to be involved in, in Catholic ministry. The social justice work to me was, oh, this is a great way of bringing traditions together because it's you know emphasized not only in Judaism and Christianity, but all the you know major world religions that kind of call to make the world better, however you envision that. And I love the the kind of the Jewish Hebrew like phrase, tikkun olam, the concept of like repairing the world. And again, such a great legacy of social action uh, within Judaism in the United States and Catholicism. And that just kind of brought it together uh, for me. So a way of like finding the, those bridges. Uh, so yeah, to yeah. hear, even the way you talk about like how you would, you know, how you felt, like I felt like when I'm with my, when I was like at Catholic school, a Catholic university felt like so Jewish. And then we go and hang out with like my, <laughs> my, Jew, my Jewish cousins at their bar and bat mitzvahs and feel like the most Catholic person ever. So like never quite like feeling exactly at home, but kind of loving uh, all of those things, all those traditions. Yeah, totally. I think there's, you know, there's this sense of just constantly walking on the borders. I talk about this with other people and, you know, there was a, a tension and, you know, there's, I, 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 for a while I wanted to get rid of this tension and somehow thought that, oh no, if I just became more Catholic or if I give away my, you know, I don't know what the right phrase is, but stop, somehow stop being Catholic, it, which is, this all sounds ridiculous. You can't, there's no way of stopping any of this, but, you know, then that would get rid of the tension, but I've just kind of come to be at peace with it and think that it's actually the tension itself that is part of the vocation and actually creates a kind of a fire to, to do some of this important work that you're called to, that I'm called to. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit again about so your area of study uh, now, things that you focus on. Again, you said uh, Hebrew scriptures, a phrase that we can use instead of the Old Testament. So maybe tell us why why you use that phrase uh, instead of saying the Old Testament. Sure. There are a number of a number of words to describe the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew Bible. So if you're Christian, we often say Old Testament because it's connected to the New Testament as a Bible in a sense. Uh, sometimes we call it the First Testament as opposed to the Second Testament. If you're Jewish, you just call it the Bible or you call it, you know, the Tanakh, the three parts of the Bible, the Torah teachings and the prophets or Nevi'im and the writings or the Ketuvim. And the expression Hebrew Bible or Hebrew scriptures, for me at least, it's it's an attempt to recognize that this is a body of scriptures that's holy for two different religious traditions and to kind of hold those together and intention and try to respect both. So it's, it's an, it's an imperfect expression because there are texts in there that are not in Hebrew, but you know, they're all imperfect and it's, we choose the best that we can do. And when you come to those texts, so for us as, as Catholics, come to that, there's a again tradition in the church and we see this in the New Testament, right? Of like looking back at Hebrew scripture text as, you know, kind of leading us to things that we hear about. You know, we even our mass or for 
for Christmas, we hear about like the birth of the baby from the prophet Isaiah and see the connection right there to Jesus. But I know we also talked about like really wanting to read these texts on their own terms. What are some of the, the challenges for kind of Christians coming to these texts, wanting to kind of superimpose our, our own faith on those on those texts? I think that the the biggest challenge, I mean, to speak just specifically to a Catholic community, because I, I think different denominations have their own challenges. But one of the greatest challenges, I would say, is our lack of understanding, our lack of intimacy with the Hebrew scriptures. And if you look at just the the liturgical structure, you know, the, the way that we read the liturgical cycle and mass, especially on Sundays, the, you know, we read a, a continuous gospel every year, a synoptic gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke. We throw in John throughout different seasons. We're always doing a semi-continuous reading of, of another book in the New Testament as the second reading. And the first reading is, is writ, it's, it's chosen in order to be paired with the gospel. So we don't ever do a semi-continuous reading. Um, the text can feel, from my, my perspective as a scholar, like they're being kind of haphazardly ripped out of the Bible. And so it's quite natural that when we have that experience, one, we don't really get to know the Hebrew scriptures. It feels totally disorienting. And second of all, we only know how to kind of superficially explain how it connects specifically to a gospel that could be written a thousand years later without understanding its own context, its own own time. I think I think that is the the biggest hurdle for us, honestly. Yeah. And I, I know too, like as I've thought a little bit about this and we can get into this as we talk about three examples from Hebrew scripture uh, that we might want to turn to in these difficult times. But I know I know that for me, like there's some times where you see a you know God in Hebrew scripture who doesn't seem to like really like match up with our vision of like an all loving, <laughs> compassionate God in New Testament, right? Like it's, it's sometimes like there are some violence, like on the part of God, like things that like, oh, this is like a more wrathful God. And sometimes I think we end up like very cheaply just saying like, oh, the God of the Old Testament and is, uh, is an angry God, but then it changes, which we know is not, is not something that Catholics believe. Uh, so like, yeah, how, how do you square that for, for yourself kind of coming to this again, not like with just one book, right? We know it's a collection of so many things from so many places and, and writers um, with like a vision of God as loving and compassionate. Like, yeah. Where do you find you know, those things coming together? If, you know, for those of us who really know the Hebrew scriptures well, we know that there God is imagined in so many different ways in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, it's also important just to keep in mind that, you know, I think sometimes like my students, people that I, I teach or talk to think that the Bible is about God. You know, we're going to enter the pages of the Bible. We're going to meet God there. We're going to learn something get, like a moral teaching um, and then walk away and learn how to be better people. The Hebrew scriptures in particular, you can't really read them with that lens. I mean, sure, it's a theological text. People are, are writing about their understanding of God and the world and, and their, their role in it. But it is also fundamentally a, a, a set of writings about people and people kind of grappling to understand. Um, you know, we, we believe as as people of faith, we believe that the 
the Bible is divinely inspired, but unless you're a fundamentalist Christian, you know, we take into account that this is all, these are also very, very human texts. And so when they're trying to understand their experiences, they're also placing their own ways of kind of emotions and ways of understanding the world onto God in order to try to make sense of who God is. And those different, you know, um, interpretations are not the totality, obviously, of the divine as we understand the divine. So God can be, you know, father, eagle, rock, mother, um, and God, God can be jealous. God can be punishing. Um, the one common thread in the Hebrew Bible is that God is tenacious uh, and, and incredibly faithful to these ragamuffin people who keep screwing up. Uh, so if there is one way of understanding God in the Hebrew Bible, it would be that this is a, a faithful and tenacious God who has made this unconditional covenant. But there are all different ways of understanding God within an ancient Near Eastern context, which is the Middle East, a very, very long time ago. It's a completely different context than ours and than the New Testament. So I think all of those things are important to keep in mind. And, you know, the other thing, just my last little shtick here before we move on, is that we, from my perspective, I mean, this is the God that Jesus knew and loved and with whom Jesus felt incredibly intimate and connected. We have to know that and remember that, first of all. And I also, you know, this might seem a little bit shocking um, or harsh, but I don't really believe that we can understand Jesus and who he was without understanding the Hebrew scriptures and the different ways of understanding God in the Hebrew scriptures. This is a great prep for us, I think, as we go in and as our listeners like approach these texts, uh, they're trying to think like, are there any other things you kind of tell your students as they're approaching? It seems like, again, be ready for some, some tension, some contradiction. So not like going to be neatly wrapped, a uh, little, you know, gifts for us to guide us on our journey all the time, you know, not those, those chestnuts we're always looking for. Um, <laughs> so yeah, any other thing you tell your students as like, as they get ready to kind of jump in maybe for the first time in depth to, to Hebrew scripture? One key thing, and this is, I wrote about this in the Commonweal article last year on King David, is that the, I think that there is a literary tool that's going on in at least the narratives of the Hebrew Bible, which is that the writers are trying to pull us in to the muck, as it were, to the difficulties of human life, to imperfections, and force us to sit there and sit in it and grapple with it as a tool for self-reflection, as a tool for coming to understand the complexities of, of the world. And so you can't just look for some simple moral teaching to just extract. You have to go in and work through the muck in order to come out on the other side um, with a deeper and fuller understanding of, of who we are. All right. Well, let's work through some muck. <laughs> Let's Great. do it. So we have three, again, three kind of sections, um, books or stories from Hebrew scripture. I want to look at, again, things for you that you've written about that really kind of maybe are, are good to visit during difficult times. So we're in difficult times. So I want to start with uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I didn't know much about Ecclesiastes. I haven't hadn't like really read it even. Uh, I knew the, the song that Pete Seeger wrote that the birds made famous. You know, there is a season for everything under the heavens. That, and then like the opening line, right, which is vanity of vanities. All things are vanity. 
so I, I knew a little bit about that. Um, I love this little uh, Frederick Beekner reflection. He's a th- Protestant theologian uh, about about the book. Kind of like you know, he, he writes that you know when the rabbis got together to decide what books to put in Hebrew scripture, what to throw out. That Ecclesiastes maybe almost didn't make the cut because it's. <laughs> It's weird, right? It's a little <laughs> bit different. So for folks who might not be as familiar like I am, like, could you do a little kind of overview introduction of, of the book before we dive in? Sure. So yeah, Ecclesiastes, it's one of the later texts in the Hebrew Bible that we have. So it was written for little, you know, for history nerds, written some t- anytime between the late 6th and 2nd centuries BCE. It's about 12 chapters long, and it's a miscellany of topics. So there's not a, a clean, kind of clear narrative strand that goes through the, the book. And it's part of the wisdom tradition of of ancient Israel, which is above all reflecting on the nature of the world, the nature of God and the place of humans in this world. And Ecclesiastes himself is communicating his experience, his experiential wisdom. That's what he's trying to do in in this book. He calls himself Kohelet in the very beginning, and that's the name of the book in Hebrew. Kohelet means gatherer or assembler. So meaning someone who gathers together wisdoms and sayings. And of course, there are all these famous lines, which you just threw out, you know, every single one of them. There is a season for everything. There's nothing new under the sun. You know, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that that term for vanity um, underscores the theme of the text, I would say, above all. The word in Hebrew is hevel, which can be translated as breath or futility or we vanity and the word expresses the inability of us as humans to make any coherent sense of the world uh, or to have an understanding of an overall plan or a purpose to our lives so god has some overall purpose but any human attempts to understand it or to control life or to get ahead is completely futile um, there's this other line in it that kind of takes us to the the depths of of you know the writer's depression, I would say is I've seen all things that are done under the sun, and behold, all is hevel, all is futile or vanity, and all is a striving after the wind. In Hebrew, that's reut ruach, which is another expression that we see in this text. Um, so you can see why it's a, a controversial book because it's you know uncomfortable and radical and unorthodox, and so it was a debate whether to to bring it in uh, to the the canon. So when you read that, I, again, seen that scholars have even debated, like, is this a hopeful text or pessimistic or <laughs> yeah. can you not even use those words to describe it? I can yeah. see that being like in some ways, like a peaceful acceptance, maybe. Maybe that's why you think it might be helpful for us to read in this difficult time. Or it could be this kind of throwing up the hands, giving up. Though if someone was yeah. going to totally do that, like, well, I guess you could write about that. But so yeah, what what is your take? Is it something that like, why is it included? Why is it worthwhile for us? If it's just this kind of like, we're not going to be able to figure anything out. So why try? This is, a, you know, this is a great question. Um, you know, there are some people who would argue there are some glimmers of hope that we see in in the in the book. The very end, for example, the last verse calls everyone to revere God and follow the commandments. And so, you know, from a scholarship perspective, we would say that those are kind of secondary additions or to the that were added in by someone who is really uncomfortable with the, <laughs> with the book. But others would, would argue that actually the whole thing should be read through that last line so that it's the text is really flipped. Um, but, you know, I, I have two takes on the book that I often tell to my students. One is that 
we have to understand Ecclesiastes from within a religious tradition. So this is not someone who is writing on the outside. You know, this is someone who is religious, who believes in God, who is likely incredibly devout, and who is really in a moment of struggle. And so he's in there struggling and he's trying to, you know, he's communicating with people, with a body, connecting, trying to understand what's going on. So it's very real and very raw. And I think the second thing connects to that, which is that I I do think that this like pessimistic, optimistic language is is a false dichotomy. And I, I would probably choose the words comforting and discomforting over pessimistic and, and optimistic. And it all really depends on where we are in life. So, you know, when we're going through difficult times, um, books like Ecclesiastes walk with us and help us to express better where we are. I had a one of my good friends from seminary, she was going through her um, formation in the hospitals as a hospital chaplain. And she told me one story about a, a religious woman who was dying and my friend was sitting by her bedside and asked her if she could read a psalm to her. You know, and of, of all of the psalms, this woman wanted to hear Psalm 88. And if anyone has read Psalm 88, it it's the only psalm without a happy ending. And yet it was the psalm that was what gave this woman comfort and, and solace. So sometimes, you know, it's the act of expression of pain, a good cry, or just being able to just mourn that can be deeply cathartic and healing. And I, I think that is what Ecclesiastes can do for us when we're in those spaces. You mentioned that when you teach this to your students, um, they often don't like it you know, when we were emailing beforehand. So they often like don't really w- respond very well, but like in this past semester, they did. What you think it was because of that, like kind of experiencing this and feeling like some kinship through time and space uh, with the author? What was what was the reasons you think for uh, for their connecting with it this time around? That's exactly it. I think that's exactly it. You, you know, you come to college. I mean, uh, clearly co- some college students have gone through immense difficulties in their lives. And there are also a number of college students who they're young and they just haven't had those experiences yet. And so when you are in a space where you haven't suffered, you know, to read the vicissitudes of life in Ecclesiastes, to read there's a time for laughter and a time for mourning. Well, you don't really want to hear that there is going to be some mourning coming up, you know, and and so you can kind of reject it and, and push it away. But, you know, our students, they were thrown off campus in March. They were thrown out of their community. It was disorienting and scary and, and traumatic. And the Bible, I was I was shocked that the Bible for so many students um, and, you know, non-religious students, it became their companion. It basically became their their community to help them. And it, they loved Ecclesiastes. They usually, you know, I have to like defend him. They, you know, but they just loved Ecclesiastes. I had one student just to point out what there's a verse, you know, in Ecclesiastes 3, that every everything there is a season, there's a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, et cetera, et cetera. There is a verse in there in verse five, there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. And I had one student write a whole paper on the connection between that verse and the contemporary times of social distancing, of masking, but the kind of promise that there will be a time for embracing again. 
So you encourage your students to make those connections to kind of see, again, scripture in some ways as as living, as something that can speak to us today. Like what as was your scholarly take on that? Obviously, we study it in its own context, try to figure out what you know the author was saying his time, but then also kind of make applications into our own life. What like, yeah, how do you see that as as part of kind of scripture scholarship? Well, it's in the teaching context, I actually, I try to make that the last step because it's the, it's for students, it's the natural first step. They just want to go straight to what's my personal take on this? How is God speaking to me personally through the Bible? And so I actually, we do like a whole exegesis project, which is literally exegesis interpreting from the text out. And they have a semester long process where they have to go through this whole series of research steps to get through the through the context kind of careful word searches of a very small passage and then kind of grow it out from there and then they finally can make their theological bridge at the end when they've done all that work but for this this class this semester it just all got thrown out the window i mean <laughs> we were all just hanging by a thread crawling to the finish line and they just needed some solace and so i just you know, I did what I could and I let them just cling to, to cling to the Bible for with, for with everything that they had. Okay. Any other final thoughts on Ecclesiastes before we move on? What else uh, in there that we, we didn't mention? Obviously a lot, but. I think we're good to go. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> so, uh, so we can start with Ecclesiastes and that will get us feeling, well, who knows how it will get us feeling. Um, but then we can move to um, the story of. Well, no, we'll get to King David after. Let's do Psalm 91 first, which I guess the Psalms are often attributed to King David, who we'll talk about. You can talk about that history, that tradition. Uh, so Psalm 91, when I started looking at it, for me, the first thing as a good church-going Catholic kid, you know, comes to mind is the song uh, On Eagle's Wings by Michael Jonkis, often played at uh, at funerals, which is kind of inspired, obviously, and taken from Psalm 91. Uh, so, yeah, tell us a little bit about, about this psalm and, and what it's doing. Sure. It's um, so in Jewish tradition, it's called the the Song of Plagues in Hebrew, it's Shir Shel Pegaim, and um, it pairs war and plague as these two external events that are the most upending, disorienting events that ca- that we can go through in life. And it's a call for it's a it's a psalm of reassurance and trust that God will bring us through these difficult times, and. I think more than anything, it is a call towards deep intimacy with God. And so the whole first part of the psalm, you know, the, first, the first verses are often the most important verses of any text because they lay out basically what the, the writer is, or is, is trying to do with the, the psalm. And the beginning, um, you know, it's filled with this language for kind of resting or sheltering in God. You who dwell in the shelter of the Most High, or a literal translation would be the secret of the Most High, who dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. You know, God is described as a refuge, a fortress, a great, a great eagle, eagle, a faithful shield, uh, and all. We have all of these names for God too that both express the awesomeness of God and also the intimacy that one experiences with God. So it's a kind of a combined psalm of reassurance for this kind of turning inward in order to be embraced and braced to go through these hardships and these difficult times. So the the 
the psalmist writing, obviously, like the history of Israel is racked by plague and war, right? I mean, so this is something that's kind of happening all the time, exile, other things. Do you know anything about the, the context of where Psalm 91 is coming from? Do we know like what thing that's responding to? Nope. No, no idea. Nope. I mean, we have, you know, people will make statements, you know, we could, we could um, guess that it's the Babylonian exile or something, you know, but it could be any, any experience. Uh, and I, what becomes really important with the Psalms, and especially I think this Psalm is the history of interpretation. So what have people done with it in the history of interpretation? And this Psalm is remarkable um, in terms of what people have done with it. So it's, there is, often it's been given a kind of an ethical thrust an ethical focus so that this kind of inward right orientation towards God leads to external right action and care for your neighbor, care for the other. So it was applied actually during the Nuremberg plague, the height of the Nuremberg plague in 1533, it was applied to, you know, how we take care of each other rather than, uh, you know, freak out and kind of isolate, um, isolate in a bad way. I mean, <laughs> not in a, a helpful way towards other people. And it's been, you know, used during Nazi Germany, all as a call to, to care for, for the other. And then um, it, it has become a psalm for liminal spaces and kind of standing on the threshold. So if you're Jewish, um, it's recited at the close of, of Shabbat or the close of Sabbath services, as a prayer at night, funeral services, for Christians, it's a it's a prayer uh, psalm that is said during Compline in monastic communities during evening prayer. We also use it the first Sunday of Lent during Year C as a kind of a symbol of the temptation that we're going to go to through during Lent. Because interestingly, in the Gospels, the devil actually quotes from this psalm when Jesus is tempted in the desert. So it's this prayer for protection, and it's a prayer for how we work through these kind of liminal threshold spaces and really I think who we, who we want to be when we come out on the other side. I was looking at it and thinking about like the line. So because you have made the Lord your refuge you know, in verse nine, the most high your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you. Yeah. No scourge come near your tent. So we know that that's in some ways not true, right? Like <laughs> right. the evils, the evil has befallen and will befall. So what, what do you think is talking about there? Obviously acknowledging that, Hey, yeah, bad stuff happens. So, What's the deeper meaning? Yeah. I mean, you know, this the psalmist is not a stupid person. Obviously, this person has gone through difficulties. Um, so I, you know, I don't think that I think that reading it as a kind of a literal promise that, you know, if you go even a little bit above it, verse seven, a thousand may fall at your left side, 10,000 at your right, but it shall not reach you as in, ter in terms of harm and death. Um it's not supposed to be this literal promise. It's a, it's a reassurance. And this is also where it's the place of this particular psalm in the whole Psalter becomes really important because it balances out, I think, some of the cries of intense despair and mourning that we find elsewhere, like Psalm 90, which comes directly before it. I think about, and I think about this in the context of the, the prophets, I'm not sure if it applies to the, the Psalms too, but that there are times in which people are feeling pretty comfortable uh, in you know ancient Israel. And so like the prophets come and like bring some of the like, hey, you're messing up here. You're forgetting the covenant with God. You need to like, you know, take care of each other. You need to not worship false idols, like the, the kind of the, uh, you know, the afflicting the comfortable. And then the flip side of that kind of comforting the afflicted, thinking of times in which a great suffering that the message that God sends through the prophets is, is one of comfort. Do we see that in the Psalms too? Again, obviously some real like, you know, 
feelings of abandonment and, and anger and of feeling left by God in, in some ways, but then also something like this, this message of comfort. Um, yeah. Do you see those things happening in, in the Psalms like they do in the prophets? Oh, for sure. Yes, for sure. The Psalms, I and mean, more than anything, these are, the Psalms are the most personal, the most personal texts that we have in the Bible. And they give us a real sense of human experience and all the ups and downs of, of human experience. Um, yeah. And so, so some of them are deeply mournful, like Psalm 88, that one without a happy ending, where it just like ends in the dark, <laughs> you know? Um, and there are these, you know, beautiful Psalms um, and Psalms about wisdom and um, also some very difficult Psalms about, you know, like let's smite our enemies, which all has to be understood from the lens of the, uh, the this is the underdog in a really bad place that's mm. just trying to get a little bit of comfort. I saw when I was looking up uh, some information about Psalm 91 that it's often kind of printed on bandanas that are given to, to U.S. military members. So soldiers like out in the field is kind of seen as this token of here's Psalm 91 and maybe a message of comfort as they, you know, go to, into into battle. Is there, again, that tradition of it being used in, in military settings? And if you know about that at all, like, do you think that's like getting the point, missing the point, sort of both? Like, what, yeah, what is your take on it being used in, in those types of settings? Yeah, I, you know, I, not having been in the military myself, I don't, I don't know what people's experiences are when they wear this. And I would imagine that it varies from person to person. It is certainly a psalm of, of reassurance, you know, and, and so in that sense, it's very helpful. But again, if it's used superficially as a literal promise that you're not going to get hurt, for example, that's, that's a problem because it's not understanding the deeper meaning. Um, and, also, of course, if it's understood as this promise that you're going to get your enemies, that's a real problem. Mm. So, you know, I, I think if we go back to how it's been used in terms of this ethical focus, that could be really helpful for training people in the military, for training police forces. You know, we talked today about some of the issues um, in the police forces. And if it's and if there is an idea that we have to do our own inward transformation, leading to care for each other in and part of community, that could be great. So the Psalms are often attributed to the, the subject of our next chat, King David. We know that is a tradition. What is the, is that true as we transition to King David? Like the, the guy we're about to talk about, did he have anything to do with the Psalms? Do we know is, a, yeah. What, what do we think about that? Probably not. The, Psalm, the, the Psalms are, they have a lot of later attributions for people, especially David and Solomon. And some of the wisdom texts are also attributed to Solomon. And you know, that's that's a, bit, a way of, of stating the importance of these particular figures more than anything else. But who knows? I mean, maybe David wrote some things. We just don't have evidence, evidence for it. Um, he certainly prayed, I think. Sure. Well, we can, we can also send people our episode. Uh, my colleague Eric did about the sayings of Ignatius that he didn't really say. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Does it really? Does it really matter? <laughs> right. Well, some of the time it seems like kind of contradictory to at least what a particular saint might have been emphasizing. Uh, so there are times in which maybe it's not great, but other times, hey, it's part of a tradition, and you know, maybe nothing terrible about that as long as you go in with eyes open. So uh, I did want to get to the story of King David. Uh, I feel like I just kind of heard went through that story in the daily mass lectionary right before I stopped going into the office every day where we have we have mass, which is great working with the Jesuits. Um, so, yeah, King David, interesting figure, conflicted person. 
give us an introduction to to his story. Sure. We first find David in, in first the book of First Samuel, and he is uh, has a relationship with King Saul, who is the ostensibly the first king of Israel. And in First Samuel, David is really made to look perfect, flawless. He's even good looking, you know, all the things. Uh, and Saul is denigrated. Um, and you get to Second Samuel and Saul is, is, has died and David is, this is, you know, all the very short, simplistic version. He takes, becomes king. And this is when all hell breaks loose and the you know what hits the fan with David. And um, the linchpin, the, the text that I was referencing in the article, the Commonwealth article, was the linchpin of the narrative, which is in 2 Samuel 11, which is where David's bored. You know, he should have been out with his troops, which is what kings do. And instead, he's wandering around his house. He sees a woman he's attracted to, Bathsheba. He sleeps with her. She's married. He sleeps with her, gets her peg pregnant, tries to get out of it, can't get out of it because her husband is a, a very good person. And so kills, gets, you know, has the husband killed. And then that kind of there are all of these natural consequences that lead from that and a kind of disintegration of his whole family. So that's a really, you know, that's a really hard uh, story. And it's a story that demonstrates how absolute power corrupts absolutely and the need for checks and balances. Um, So, you know, people can have a really hard time with it, especially if they are elevating David as a symbol for uh, the line of the Messiah. Um, whether Jesus or the Jewish Messiah. I know, I mean, there are Catholic churches, not many with names from figures from Hebrew scripture, but I, I grew up near a St. David the King church, you know, so he's, <laughs> he's someone who, like, who continues to be elevated. So like, how does he come out the other side from some of that, which includes like not even talking about like kind of having his son killed, right? Um, in addition to this, like, how does he come out as someone who we still revere? Is it just that, that, that lineage or is there, what is like redeeming about that story? Well, so I think you need, we need a little crash course in history here to understand a little bit about what what has what has happened. I mean, first of all, in the story itself, he is redeemed in a way. So he, the the prophet Nathan, comes to him and he repents. Some would say he some would say he truly repents, and some would say that he does not. So he is kind of redeemed in a way in that story. His line becomes the monarchic line in Judah, which is the southern part of Israel. It's basically. The, from where our traditions in the Hebrew scriptures come from. So he becomes the line, the monarchic line, all the way up until the fall of Judah to the Babylonian exile um, in what is to what is now kind of contemporary Iraq. And that that time, that's 586 to 536 BCE. And that was a time that was a it was a pivotal point for ancient Israelites in terms of the develop theological developments development of monotheism, for a kind of a, a reorientation of their perspective on um, the nature of kind of divine punishment and salvation and healing. And a lot of the biblical traditions were kind of reframed, reinterpreted, or even rewritten or written in, in light of that, that time period. And one of the things that happened there was a yearning for a return to Jerusalem, a return to Judah, um, what we might call now, like, let's go back to normal, right? What what exactly does that mean? And for them, it meant a reinstatement of this monarchic line. 
And kings then were anointed by prophets. They were, and so they became anointed ones, Mashiach in Hebrew, Messiah in English. And so over time, this kind of yearning for the, a political figure became a religious yearning. Um, it was never not religious, but it became much more kind of purely religious. So it would not just be a Messiah, an anointed one from the line of David, it would be the Messiah who would come and actually reorient, renew the entire world. And so that is really where David became revered. So in addition to our hope for like going back to our normal, as you said, maybe connected in some ways to this story, what else from the, the kind of story and history of, of King David makes it, do you think, a worthwhile text to visit in a difficult time? Well, you know, when I first wrote that article last year, I was grappling with, um, you know, political corruption. And I think that's that's all gone now, though. So, we're, <laughs> right. Yeah, we're, we're perfect. Fine. Yeah, we're through that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so I, I there is there's a way in which understanding the, the story of David and grappling with the story of David also forces us to grapple where we are at today and now. Um, and, you know, this statement that is in the Bible that we should, you know, be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves, there, there's, there is something about um, always being um, open and, um, I don't know the right word, have the most optimistic outlook about where we can go and how we can come back together as a community, unify something imaginative and creative about thinking in that way, which is what Jews have done, did through the, the exile. But there's also a call to see things really clearly, um, to not be shocked by deep corruption, um, to not be paralyzed by it, and to figure out a way to um, work through it. We've had over the past few years, I think of the Me Too movement, other, you know, corruption in the, in the church as like kind of those who have been uh, credibly accused of abuse have, you know, there's been some reckoning around that and the enabling of that culture within the church. I mentioned again, some corruption to the highest levels of, of government. Um, so yeah, we see some of this like reckoning with our people who, again, we wouldn't maybe have held in high esteem who then, kind of, you know, kind of crash down. And the question becomes, what do we do then? Like, do, you know, do the, do these folks, like, do they really have to repent? Can we tell if they're really truly sorry and have changed? Or is it just a show? You even mentioned that kind of with our interpretation with David. Um, so, yeah. So what, what do you see in the, in the text there? Again, you said maybe some people like don't necessarily take his apology or his repentance seriously. And again, something that we've, a theme we've seen kind of echo in our own time. Uh, so the, I mean, the, this is not a, a Pollyannish world in one sense. So it's not as if you know David says he's sorry, and then suddenly everything is fine and dandy again, and he can right. kind of continue his reign. He has, you know, natural repercussions, natural consequences, as my mother always said. Those they are real throughout the the Hebrew Bible. So in, in the case of David, he his basically all of his children die um, up until Solomon. Um, and uh, 
And yet, you know, this is also a, a period of like a monarchic period. So you have a kind of a single rule or a single line. It's a completely different political system from ours. So, yeah, I, you know, I think I think for us, you know, one of the things that I have noticed, like on social media and things like that, if you go into social media, um, there is all kinds of like virtue signaling that we see. You know, I'm right, you're wrong, demonizing other people, divisiveness. Um, it can be really easy to kind of just want to, you know, burn the thing down, um, which is a natural response. It's also, in my perspective, a little bit boring because it's so human. And certainly there are people who should be just taken out. You know, they are causing harm. They should not be there, not be put in power. We should have checks and balances. But again, what I what I think is really exciting um, is when we see how, how the rebuilding process, what happens after that. And I think so the Bible points both to both sides, the kind of the natural ir irrevocable um, disintegration and the rebuilding and the reunification. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a great great perspective, and really appreciate all you've brought to this conversation from you know, these these three texts. And excited to dive in myself, and I hope uh, readers can can find them as well and spend some time uh, again grappling and sitting in that tension and being okay with that. You know, uh, which I think can be such an important thing in life in general to be okay <laughs> in in times, situations, and, and with texts that are not so cut and dry and clear. Um, so before we let you go, is there anything you'd like to share with folks who are interested in, in reading more of your, your stuff or learning more about you where they can find, uh, where they can find you? Uh, sure. Well, I'm on, you can find me on Twitter. I think, I think my handle is M Mari Fleckman or M Fleckman. I can't actually remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got another, a book coming out. Um, uh, through Litterock scripture study and liturgical press called ponder, which is, um, a contemplative Bible study for year B, which is the upcoming year. And if, if we're still struggling with getting back into churches, this can be a great way to connect um, to a much broader community in the Bible and with each other. So you can you can find that too. That's great. Yeah, we'll link to all that in the, the show notes. And thanks again for taking uh, some time in the middle of your your summer to uh, to chat. I just found it really a fascinating conversation. Again, makes me want to go uh, do a lot more reading. So uh, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, best wishes for you as... Uh, Whatever this coming school year holds, uh, yeah, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mike. You too. It's been a pleasure. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Dara Sump, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Mike Jordan Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. Music